you have your Bibles handy, I invite you to turn with me to our text this Lord's Day, as it's found in Galatians chapter uh, 6, and uh, we'll be reading verses uh, 15 through 16, Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. <clears throat> For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. We seek to answer basically one question. Uh, in the sermon this Lord's Day, the final sermon uh, in our series on Israel, past, present, and future. And this is the question. Is the New Covenant Church the New Israel? Is the New Covenant Church the New Israel? Well, before considering that question, Let's briefly review what we have covered in this series of sermons. Just a, a very brief summary. Under Israel past, first of all, we have seen that the Lord God graciously chose Abraham and his posterity to be the trustees of that gracious promise of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would bring salvation not only to Israel, but to all nations of the world. Included in that gracious promise we have noted was the promise of a specified earthly land that ultimately pointed to a heavenly promised land. God miraculously, as we learned, delivered his people that he had chosen out of Egyptian bondage, brought them through the Red Sea, destroyed their enemies in the Red Sea, formed Israel into a covenanted nation and covenanted church there at Mount Sinai and gave to them his holy commandments. And 40 years later, the Lord God brought them into possession of the promised land where they lived as long as they were faithful. They lived in the land. They dwelt securely and safely. But when they became unfaithful, when they became disobedient, the Lord oppressed them by way of nations around them and even taking them, sending them into captivity among those nations. Throughout Israel's history, the promise of the coming Messiah was ever presented to God's people through prophecies, and through the ordinances which he appointed for them. They all pointed to the coming Messiah. What about under Israel present? Uh, just again, brief summary. We have seen that God kept his promise in sending his only begotten son to be the perfect, sinless prophet, priest, and king for his people at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came unto his own people, but his own people received him not. Israel as a nation rejected the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior, conspiring with the Romans uh, to crucify even their king. God's righteous judgment, as we learned, fell upon Israel uh, for their rejection of the Lord Jesus. And that was especially noted even in the New Testament scriptures in the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. And that judgment uh, has continued to rest upon the nation of Israel since then. Uh, the Apostle Paul 
uh, says concerning Israel at the present time that Israel is the enemy of the gospel presently. Uh, they are enemies of Jesus Christ presently. And yet at the same time, the Apostle Paul says that they are beloved for the sake of the gracious covenant that God established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This should likewise be our understanding at the present time concerning Israel as a nation, that they are God's enemy as regards the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of the covenant that God made with them by, by way of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so like Paul, we should earnestly pray. We should earnestly pray for the salvation of Israel, even as we pray for the salvation of all nations. But we should, as Paul did, pray for the salvation of Israel. Israel's present status as a nation in the land, we also noted, uh, is not to be interpreted to be a realization of the promised blessings that God made to them uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For Israel, as we've noted, is yet God's enemy. Uh, their being in the land is not the fulfillment of those promised blessings. Those promised blessings will be realized when they are no longer a Christ-rejecting nation, when they receive their Messiah, when they are converted to Jesus Christ as, as a nation, then they will dwell safely and peacefully in the land, not being attacked as they presently are by nations all around them. What about Israel in the future? Well, we have seen that the Lord has promised both a national conversion of Israel to Jesus Christ, at which time she will be grafted back into the olive tree of the visible church, along with all the other nations that will come uh, into the visible church at that time. There will be no divinely approved at that time. There will be no divinely uh, approved rebuilt temple. Uh, there will not be the reestablishment of the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the feast days of the Old Covenant. Those have passed away. Those are abolished. They've been nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. The veil in the temple was rent into two pieces in order to demonstrate that those ceremonies of the Old Testament have ended. Israel as a nation will also, as we noted, be restored to her land to dwell in it in peace and safety with her fellow Christian nations. She will be a Christian nation and she will dwell in peace and safety with all of her Christian nations around her. So let us now move on. A brief summary where we have been. Let's move on to this final question. Is the new covenant church uh, the new Israel? Well, the answer uh, is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. So we're going to divide the remainder of the sermon up in answering the question. First, the yes. Yes, the new covenant church is the new Israel. In what sense is the new covenant church then the new Israel? It's the, the new Israel, the new covenant church is the new Israel in an ecclesiastical sense, in a church sense. Remember that Israel of old uh, was both a nation civilly and ecclesiastically. It was both a state with a civil government and it was a church with an ecclesiastical government. The church and state of Israel had distinct leaders over the civil as well as over the religious, the, the ecclesiastical side 
distinct laws pertaining to both the state and to the church. Remember King Isaiah got into a little trouble because he overstepped his bounds and went into the temple to offer incense on the altar, the golden altar of incense, and was rebuked by the priest, and uh, he lashed out at the priest, and as a result, uh, he, was, he was judged with leprosy because he overstepped his bounds. God had not permitted uh, or given unto the king uh, the authority or the right to enter into the temple to do that which the priest was alone to do. It shows again this distinction between church and state, even in the Old Testament. And just as we have seen in past sermons <clears throat> that the Old Testament temple is realized in the New Testament temple. The New Testament temple is the church, the new covenant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That new covenant temple or church is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 6.16, and some of this is review from uh, even the last sermon, but it's important that we go over this once more in regard to this question that we're seeking to answer. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are the new covenant temple, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we have also seen that the old covenant priesthood uh, is realized in the new covenant priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the priesthood of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Aaron is realized and fulfilled in the priesthood of Melchizedek, an everlasting priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we noted, and I won't read, but Hebrews chapter 7 verses 15 through 18. Just as we have seen that the old covenant sacrifices are realized in the once offered sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross for the sins of his people. As Hebrews 9.26 says, one time it was offered forever, for all time, for forever and ever that sacrifice is sufficient. No need for any future sacrifices realized in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So likewise, I submit to you, Old Covenant Israel as a church is realized in the New Covenant Israel as a church. <clears throat> Old Covenant Israel has been replaced, as a church has been replaced, superseded, realized in New Covenant Israel as Christ's church. <clears throat> Certainly the name Israel in the New Testament uh, is predominantly used uh, with an ethnic or in an ethnic national sense. That's the predominant use of Israel in the New Testament. As we've noted, for example, in Romans chapter 11, where Israel, uh, the name Israel is used many times and it's contrasted there with Gentiles. That's one of the clues that we're talking about uh, ethnicity we're talking about Israel as a nation when it's contrasted with Gentiles and the nations in Romans 11. So that's the predominant use, Israel as, again, uh, in an ethnic national sense. But I submit to you that Israel is also used in the New Testament in an ecclesiastical sense, which 
comprises or which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles as well. The Old Covenant Temple is used in the New Testament for the New Covenant Temple or church consisting of Jews and Gentiles and so is Israel as a church used in the Old Testament ethnically with regard to basically God's people in the Old Testament predominantly Jewish uh, even then though there were uh, those very small minority uh, of Gentiles that had come into the Old Testament church from outside of Israel but it was predominantly when you speak of Israel it was predominantly in an ethnic national sense uh, understood as basically Jews but in the New Testament again when in our text today, we're going to be considering from Galatians 6.16, how is that particular passage, the Israel of God, how is that to be interpreted? Is the Israel of God, again, in that only talking about uh, ethnicity? Is it only talking about those who are ethnically Jewish? Or is it talking as well about those who are Jews and Gentiles as being the new Israel of God. Just as in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, <clears throat> another name that is given to Israel or to Jews uh, is the circumcision. The circumcision and in contrast to Gentiles that are said to be the uncircumcision. And yet, the Apostle Paul uses <clears throat> that term, circumcision, in Philippians 3.3 to refer to the church, the true, the, the, the true Israel, the true circumcision, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. For we, Paul says, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Jews and Gentiles. So again, it's not unusual or uncommon to take particular names and titles that may have been used in the Old Testament to designate primarily ethnic Jews, ethnic Israel, and to apply it in the New Testament to those who are the new people of God comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. So let's consider the phrase in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Is this only referring to Jewish Christians or is it referring to both Jewish and Gentile Christians? That is to the New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ. A little bit of background about the book of the letter of Galatians written, penned by the Apostle Paul. It was occasioned uh, by churches being divided within the province of Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, various churches that had been planted there being divided by certain false teachers that claimed to believe in Christ, but at the same time, they taught that in addition to faith in Jesus Christ, Christians, particularly Jewish Christians, needed to be circumcised needed to follow the ceremonies of the Old Testament in order to be justified, declared righteous, be saved. This was the same problem that brought about uh, the synod in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Acts 15.1 says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. Uh, the, they went to Antioch. This is where they went. Uh, they they went to Antioch and taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised 
after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the heresy that was going through these various churches in Galatia at this time. Paul argues that this is a false gospel. He doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't say, oh, believe what you want to believe. No big deal. He calls it a false gospel. For one, is not justified by faith plus works. One is justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, apart from our works of obedience. Just as was true, Paul uses Abraham as an example, just as was true of Abraham, who was justified through faith alone in Christ alone before he was circumcised. He wasn't first circumcised and then justified. He was justified in the order that we find in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Then in Genesis chapter 15 as well. These, these Judaizers, as I said, were not tolerated by Paul, though they professed faith in Christ. They professed faith in Christ, but he didn't tolerate them for a moment because they compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul contends that when circumcision is added to faith in Christ for justification, in order to be justified, declared righteous by God, then there is no end to all that may be added. Add circumcision and then we must add not just circumcision, but all of the law of God. Once we go down that path, take one step in that direction, we've already given away the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, given away that we are justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone, rather than upon our righteousness. We've given it all away once we take a step in that direction that's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Notice what he says in verses 1 through 3. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ had made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's talking about, again, the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Not that he will profit you a little bit, but he'll profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Once we take that step toward saying, this must be done in order to be justified, something apart from faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, then we have taken a step to be justified, not simply by whatever it is that we say we must do, but by all of God's commandments at that point, that we must keep all. We can't pick and choose which ones we're going to keep in order to be justified. If we're going to be justified on the base of works, then we must be, again, perfect in our obedience, keeping all the law of God. This heresy denied the complete sufficiency, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone for our justification, his sacrifice alone for his people. You see, faith plus circumcision, faith plus obedience to the law of God was to earn by way of, or is to earn by way of our own righteousness, our own works of righteousness, what only Christ's work can accomplish and has accomplished, and that he perfectly and completely purchased all that we need 
in order to be accepted before God the Father. That's the amazing thing about salvation by grace through faith alone. It's not about us seeking to gain God's approval. It's about Jesus Christ having gained God's approval once and for all for us who trust in him, not in ourselves, not in our works, but in Jesus alone and his righteousness. As a result, these false teachers not only promoted false doctrine, but as is always the case where false doctrine is promoted, there are also promoted divisions, sinful divisions uh, in the church of Christ. And that was true in the churches of Galatia. Sinful divisions between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They taught, these false teachers taught that Jewish believers in keeping the law, yeah, coming to Christ, but in keeping the law, they taught that Jewish believers had greater privileges than Gentile believers. They were on, on a diff, little different plane uh, by way of God's estimation than mere Gentile believers in being circumcised, keeping the dietary laws, the feasts and the festivals and all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul argues that to reestablish, to reestablish these ceremonies, these old covenant ceremonies, as religious ceremonies that we are to keep presently, was to return to the infancy of the old covenant church rather than to the maturity of the new covenant church. It was to go back to our ABCs, having reached the, 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 the level of education and in the school of Christ, where we are able to read, where we're able to um, write, where we're able to think with regard to the doctrine that God has given to us in Christ Jesus, we rather choose to go back to the ABCs, which was what the Old Covenant Church was a church in infancy in comparison to the New Covenant Church in maturity. So these churches, as a result, were in great confusion. The churches of Galatia were in great confusion and schism by way of these false teachers. You know, the same is true today. When churches add uh, to the appointed worship uh, that God has commanded or to the, to the faith in Jesus Christ alone for our justification which God has appointed when those things are added to uh, that which God has not appointed in the new covenant or in his word uh, divisions occur schisms sinful divisions schisms between churches uh, between various movements within Christianity at large occur, whether it be Messianic Judaism, whether it be Hebrew Roots Movement, whether it be the Church of Rome that has added countless ceremonies that are not appointed in God's word, and even Protestant churches. Um, I've been on the internet and seen so many Protestant churches talking about celebrating Lent. Uh, Protestant ministers, uh, talking about celebrating Lent. Like, where does that come from? Uh, that's not taught in, in God's word. That's adding ceremonies, which again proves to be whenever we add something that God's not appointed, it proves to be schismatic. It proves to divide Christ's church. It brings schism into Christ's church. So that's the background 
as to what's going on in the letter to the Galatians. So as we kind of focus our attention upon Galatians 6.16, I'd have you note that there are two designations of Christians that that are mentioned here. The first designation is this, as many as walk according to this rule. That's the first designation. The second designation is the Israel of God. And so the question is, are these two different groups of people? The first group consisting of converted Gentiles and the second group consisting of converted Jews. Or rather, are these two designations referring to one and the same group consisting of converted Jews and Gentiles? Well, the consensus, again, I've not looked at every possible commentary, but you know, having consulted, I don't know, 10, 15 different commentaries, uh, past, mostly past, uh, from Reformed uh, and, uh, and uh, Protestant commentators from the First and Second Reformations, as well as more uh, contemporary Reformed uh, commentators. Uh, the, con- the consensus, I believe, certainly lies um, in the position that these are not two separate groups, uh, that these two different designations speak to the same group, that the Israel of God here is referring to God's new covenant church consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, just uh, before we move on to talk a little bit about why that is the case from, from uh, the passage itself, from Galatians, from the, God's word in general, um, just a, a little bit of grammar, first of all. When we read Galatians 6.16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace beyond them, and mercy, and then the word and upon the Israel of God, the little word there, the conjunction and. And so the, the grammatical question is, is the word and there functioning as a connective conjunction joining two different groups, or is the word and, the Greek word chi, is it functioning in a descriptive sense, which it does in a number of passages in the, Old Te- in the New Testament? Is it functioning in a descriptive sense as opposed to a connective sense? A descriptive sense meaning that the second Israel of God describes the first group, those who walk according to the rule. So that's, that's the grammatical uh, issue. And again, you'll find uh, biblical, conservative biblical scholars falling out on uh, both sides of that particular question. But it's very important because if it is indeed a descriptive use of and, or which can be translated even, so we could, if it's descriptive in nature, it would read this way. Uh, or be understood this way, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace beyond them, and mercy even upon the Israel of God, even upon the Israel of God. For example, other uses, just a couple, as I said, there, there are multitudes of examples from the New Testament, but let me just give you a couple examples where, uh, again, the King, even the, in, in the King James Version, it translates that same word, chi, which here is translated and, translates it in other passages as even, in a descriptive sense. 
for example, in Romans 15, 6. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God even. That's the word chi. That's translated and here. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what it's, what, how it's functioning is that uh, even the Father describes what happened or, or the one referred to just before, which is God. Glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father describes God. Likewise in Revelation 17, 11, And the beast that was and is not even, there it is again, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. So again, even he is the eighth. This is not saying that the eighth is different from the beast that was and is not. It's describing further the beast that uh, was and is not as the eighth amongst those heads upon the beast. And so again, that happens, as I said, many times in, in the New Testament where the word chi is used in a descriptive sense. And I, I think there is good reason from the context here uh, to understand that that's the meaning of chi, the Greek uh, conjunction chi, here in Galatians 6.16. And as many as walk according to this rule of peace beyond them, and mercy even upon the Israel of God. So, what are the biblical reasons? We've looked at the, the issue of grammar, but let's consider what are the biblical reasons or contextual reasons for understanding that the Israel of God uh, is indeed uh, the New Covenant Church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Well, if we go back just one verse, Galatians 6.15, where it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, or a new creation. Paul in Galatians 6.15 does not want there to be any distinction between Jews and Gentiles in regard to their status in the church. Um, when he says, when he says in verse 15, neither circumcision, that would be the Jews, uh, availeth anything, being a Jew, uh, doesn't uh, in and of itself avail anything, uh, nor uncircumcision, being a Gentile, necessarily in and of itself avail anything, but what matters is being a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's what truly matters, not whether we're Jews or Gentiles. So that was, that was the point that he was making in verse 15, just the verse prior to where we find the Israel of God mentioned in verse 16. So if he's trying to minimize these distinctions, as, he, as appears to be the case in verse 15, why would he bring those distinctions up in verse 16? Why would he emphasize those distinctions as if the first group of people uh, in verse 16, uh, those who follow the rule are Gentiles, and those who are the Israel of God are Jews, if he's trying to eliminate those distinctions, why does he, uh, within the church, as to the status of the church, why would he bring them up in verse 16 uh, when he's just tried to disregard those distinctions in the previous verse? I don't think that that seems to follow logically that he would uh, then bring up the very distinctions in verse 16 that, that he was trying to avoid or trying to uh, minimize in verse 15. You see, Paul is nailing the, the very false teachers here who want to exalt uh, Jewish Christians over Gentile Christians, and he gives the title here of the Israel of God 
Therefore, to all who walk according to the rule in verse 15, which means, again, both Jews and Gentiles. You see, he, this is a subtle attack against those false teachers. You want to exalt Israel of God as being some special status within the church of Christ, false teachers, but I'm calling both Jews and Gentiles the Israel of God. In verse 16, Galatians 6.16, it's important, I think, that we recognize here, Paul does not make an ethnic distinction between Gentiles and Jews. He does not say, for example, in verse 16, and as many Gentiles as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. He doesn't mention them as being in the first group exclusively Gentiles. There's not that contrast between first Gentiles specifically stated and then Jews specifically stated thereafter. We need to, I think that's so important for us to realize there is not that distinction made there. He does make that distinction in Romans chapter 11. He talks uh, throughout the chapter, distinction between Jews and Gentiles, between the nation of Israel and the nations, Gentile nations. That is very clear that he makes that distinction in Romans 11. Verse 25 and 26, he talks about the fullness of the Gentile nations coming in and then all Israel as a nation shall be saved. Or thus, all Israel as a nation shall be saved. So I think that's, uh, again, within the context, the, those two points within the context are very, very important for us to, uh, to consider. It would have been very, very clear uh, that the Israel of God was only referring to Jewish believers if Paul had said, as I noted, for as many Gentiles as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and, and upon the Israel of God. That would have been very clear. He's making that kind of distinction, but he doesn't say that. So he includes all who walk according to the rule that is mentioned in verse 15, that both circumcision Jews, um, uh, those who are circumcised Jews, as well as those that are uncircumcised Gentiles, neither one in and of themselves is important, but what is important, what is most important, what is essential is being a new creation in Jesus Christ. One more point. Jewish and Gentile believers in the book of Galatians are called Abraham's seed. Both Jews and Gentiles are called Abraham's seed in Galatians 3.29. <clears throat> and if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Those who are Christ, those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are Abraham's seed through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So likewise, so likewise, the circumcised and uncircumcised of Galatians 6.15, who walk by the rule of the gospel of, of a new creation, are called the Israel of God. That is the people of God. Abraham's seed are the people of God. In the Old Testament, Abraham's seed were basically predominantly Jewish. In the New Covenant, um, they are predominantly Gentiles, but they, again, Jews and Gentiles are Abraham's seed, are the people of God, and so likewise, Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant Church of Jesus Christ are God's people. 
They are God's covenant people. So that's the yes part. Is the new covenant church, the new Israel? Yes, ecclesiastically, as to the church, yes. But let's ask the question again. Is the new covenant church the new Israel? There's a sense in which I think we must say no. No, the new covenant church is not the new Israel. How? You see, though the new covenant church is the new Israel ecclesiastically, the new covenant church is not the, the new Israel nationally. Nationally. The new covenant church has indeed replaced, superseded the old covenant church, but the new covenant church has not replaced or superseded Israel as a nation. As a nation. The nation of Israel, though presently under God's righteous judgment as the, an enemy of the gospel of Christ and of Christ himself, will be sovereignly, and graciously turned from their rebellion and will be granted faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life, grieving over how they have rebelled against their Messiah, as we have noted in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They will, as a nation, be saved, as Paul states in Romans eleven twenty-six. And when she is saved, as a nation, she will not... Uh, plant her own olive tree, a distinct and separate olive tree, but Israel will be grafted again into uh, the new covenant, will be grafted into the new covenant church, having been broken off uh, at the time that the new covenant came through Jesus Christ and his coming, she will be grafted back into the one olive tree the visible church, along with all the nations of the world. The promises of Abraham were always, very important, I believe, the promises of Abraham were always intended for those who have the faith of Abraham in trusting in Christ. They are the true seed, whether they be Jew or Gentile. They are the true seed of Abraham. You see, there were always those who were only Abraham's seed in the, uh, in the flesh, as to the flesh. And there were always those who were Abraham's seed in spirit and by faith in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or whether Gentile. And that's why, that's why Israel's establishment as a nation in 1948 and her present living in the land cannot be the fulfillment of God's promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't made to an unbelieving posterity. It was made to a believing posterity. As we learn from our study in past sermon in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14, there is yet coming a time when the nations will rise up against Israel and will overcome her as God's judgment upon her. And yet out of that time of judgment upon Israel as a nation, she will cry unto the Lord her God. She will cry unto the Lord Jesus in faith. She will repent of her sin as a nation, and she, she will be miraculous, miraculously saved from her sins and delivered from all her enemies by the Lord Jesus. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forth mightily at that time to bring in the nations of the world and to bring in it, all Israel as a nation to be saved and to be brought into that one olive tree. Okay, let's, that's the conclusion of that. I want to make some, some application as we bring 
again the sermon and then this series uh, to a close. Nothing that I have said concerning the judgment that rests upon Israel as a nation presently by God, righteous judgment from God, should be construed to mean that we are to hate Jews or to hate Palestinians or any other group or nationality. We're not, we're not to hate any of them, but in this particular context, we're not to hate Jews. They all need Jesus, just as we need Jesus. Israel needs Jesus as a savior, as a Messiah, to receive Jesus. You see, our certain hope is that all nations will be brought to Jesus and will be brought into Christ's church to be brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, Israel, or Palestinians, they will all be brought into the church of Jesus Christ. Remember again how Paul prayed in Romans 10.1 for the salvation. His earnest and sincere prayer was that Israel, as a nation, would be saved. God grant to each of us Paul's zeal not only to pray for the salvation of Israel, but to pray for the salvation of our own nation. Our own covenant-breaking nation. For Israel certainly is a covenant-breaking nation, but so are the kingdoms of England, Ireland, Scotland, and their national posterity, including the United States. We are a covenant-breaking nation to pray Likewise, for this nation, that the Lord would bring this nation unto himself, humble this nation, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth with such power and glory to change the hearts of leaders so that they lead in righteousness according to his law. You see, Paul's heart was broken in praying for the salvation of Israel. Is our heart broken? And praying for the salvation of Israel, praying for the salvation of our nation. One other application. Paul's words about a mere outward form of religion in which one places his or her faith in an ordinance to save them, as did the Judaizers, are intended, his words, Paul's words are intended for us all, that we might beware, take heed, that our faith not be in physical ordinances, outward ordinances, that God has given to us ordinances as a means of grace, but we do not place our faith and our trust in those ordinances to save us. Whether it be baptism or the singing of psalms or calling ourselves covenanters or whatever, none of that saves us. It is Jesus Christ alone that saves us. What is essential is that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, during his ministry, brought the same truth to the ears of the Pharisees who believed their mere outward practice of praying and fasting and almsgiving Obedience to God's law, no doubt circumcision as well, would be sufficient to satisfy God's justice, would be sufficient to justify them before God. You see, that was the point of the parable that the Lord Jesus gave, the parable of the Pharisee and the parable, the same parable of the publican, the tax collector. 
where the Pharisee goes in and is looking up and is citing all that he's done and the reason God uh, should accept him. All that he's done by way of his works, so-called works of righteousness, the Pharisees, so-called works of righteousness. And then there is the publican who cannot even look up into heaven and is so ashamed of his sin. And all he can do is beat his chest and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says it was the publican that went away justified and declared righteous before God, not the one who was boasting in his own righteousness and his own works and deeds. Not that there ought not to be works and deeds that follow our justification. Not that we are to throw the obedience to God's law out the window, but we don't do those things in order to be justified. We do them because we've been justified. Because we have been declared righteous. Because we are new creation in Christ. Because we desire to love him. And to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. That's the motivation. Not to be accepted before God. But because we are accepted before God. Through Christ our Savior. All false religion... Wherever it appears, all false religion focuses on man first reaching out to God. The true religion is God reaching out to man. Reaching out to sinners who do not deserve at all his love, his salvation, his mercy, his grace. That's the true religion where God reaches down to us through Jesus Christ. And from that, again, we thank him and we praise him for all the ordinances that he's given to us as means of grace. Whether it be baptism, the Lord's Supper, whether it be the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, psalm singing, prayers, all of God's means of grace, and we delight, as David says, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day long. And so, again, it flows from being new creatures in Jesus Christ. Mercy, dear ones, from the Lord. Mercy cannot be pulled and forced out of God's hand and out of his heart. We can't pull it out. He freely gives it. All we can do is fall upon his mercy. All we can do is beat our chest and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But he is merciful, and he delights to show mercy to all who call upon him. May Israel as a nation, call upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. May all nations call upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. May we not think that because we have been baptized, because we have had this outward ordinance, as important as it is, simply because we've been baptized, we're okay. Dear ones, the promises made in baptism but the promise is received by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, how we thank thee for the wonders of thy salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, what an incentive that thou hast shown us mercy for our desire to walk in faithfulness and obedience to thy 
holy law and commandments. It is a duty. It is required of us as those who are Christians to walk in obedience to thy commandments. But Lord, uh, we walk and fulfill that duty uh, in love uh, and delight because thou hast written the, thy law upon our hearts that we delight to do it. Our Father, we pray that thou would take, Lord, this, this series of sermons that on Israel, and Lord, we would uh, glean from thy word, thy truth, to rest in it, to have a biblical view of Israel, past, present, and future. We rejoice, our Lord, that thou art a covenant-keeping God, and though Israel is presently under judgment because of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are yet beloved for their sake. And thou wilt yet bring the Israel to salvation. And thou wilt bring us, Lord, who have been redeemed, justified, adopted into thy family, thou wilt bring us through all manner of trials, thou wilt discipline, thou wilt chasten, but thou will bring us as well uh, unto thyself to receive forever the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.